Jehovah Mekadesh, the Lord that sanctifies. It's pretty, pretty simple. I don't know what all we've got on the, the board there, but um, Jehovah, we've got to remember that that's his personal name. Mekadesh is, his, is, the, is the word to sanctify. That word or that name appears twice uh, in the Bible, and we're gonna, I'm going to go through those in just a moment. Um, Kadesh is to sanctify, is the word sanctify, and that appears multiple times in the Bible. So um, it's, it's an important aspect of our life. Um, and one of the things that um, Pastor Adam in preparing us uh, to do this as a team because it's a different, you know, it's a little different. Everybody's got to adjust to a little bit of give and takes and so on like that. But one of the things he, he brought out was um, we aren't called to be common. And one of the greatest things that Pastor and Pastor Adam have done through this study is that they've reminded us because our God is, an, we can call on his name and we can drop his name and he's got multiple names of, of those things that we can be a part of. They're all a part and we are not called to be common. We are called to be uncommon. And that's part of the sanctification process. So, we'll get started here. So the first time we see uh, the name uh, Jehovah Mekadesh is in Exodus 31, verses 12 and 13. And I use the New King James Version. And it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies. And then the next time we see it is we see it in Leviticus chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God, and you shall keep my statutes and perform them, and I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And I'm going to keep focused on these two scriptures, and I want to, I want to break it into two parts. And... When I break it into the two parts, I want us to understand that as we look at those, we need to understand there's two parts, but there's a partnership. Amen. One person got it. <laughs> there's a partnership. So God's part, and he is so awesome. Think of it, that, that they, we have been going through the names of God and his part. Every time we need something, wow, he's there. And, it's, and he's, already, he's already proclaimed it. So we need to look at the first part is God's part. He is the one who sanctified the people of Israel. He chose them. He made them holy. He set them apart. He made them his own. Whoa. He made them his own. He chose them. He made them his own. And in that, him making it his own... He has done the same thing for us through Jesus. He made us his own. By us accepting him as our savior, then we are made a part of that and, and we become part of that. And then, on top of it, he sent us the Holy Spirit. He sent us the Holy Spirit to help sanctify us. In Philippians 2.13, and I'm going to go to that part, it says, For it is God who works in you to both will and to do his good pleasure, or if you want to use another term, purpose. It's God who works in you. Wow. It is God. Do you realize that when you choose, when we accept Christ, we don't often think about it, but we're choosing to allow him to work in us. And he's got a purpose for each of us. 
I don't know how many times I've met people in recent times and, well, I just don't know what my purpose in life is. Find Jesus. You'll find your purpose. So in Romans, let's go to Romans, Romans 15, 16. I, he gave me the, and this is Paul speaking, he said he gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So again, God's part is, he's, he's fulfilling it. He's setting it in motion. He's got it going. And then, he, he remember what he said in, in, verse, uh, in Leviticus chapter 20, he said, consecrate yourselves. So there's a, there's a part of us that has to do something. So I, I broke it into that part. And again, we aren't called to be common. We're called to be uncommon. And so we have to make a choice in some things. So he gave them their part, and now he's giving us our part. So he instructed them to consecrate. And so when God set them apart for his own, he began transforming their lives. Woo, does that sound familiar? He began to transform their lives more and more like, to be more like him. It required their participation, uh-oh, interaction, relationship, to grow into the people he destined them to be. Do you realize, and if you haven't figured it out, you have destiny. And God has a plan and a progressive move in your life to take you to your destiny. A place where things, I don't know if you realize, but as you go, we, yesterday we were... Uh, some guys, some of the men were talking, and we talked about it's growing and, and how it's, it's sometimes the growing gets tough. But with Jesus, the growing's not tough. It might be a tough lesson or two, but we're getting there. So it's a relationship with him. He wants the same from us. He wants the same as he did in the Old Testament. He, it's, it, nothing's changed. The name is still prevalent. He expects, the only thing different, he expects our participation. It's not a, it's not, it's not a choice. He expects our participation. He expects our interaction. He expects our partnership. I think one of the things that suddenly hit me in, the, in, in doing this, and it reminded me of something, is Jesus doesn't want to be a part of our life. He wants to be the center of our life. He wants to be the center of our life. I, I mean, you know, how many of us, church is a part of our life? Let's. Let, Okay, Jesus, who makes us come together or wants us to come together, wants to be the center of our life. So it's, it's, it's a place that we need to be. Paul wrote, uh, excuse me, I'm going to go to a different place. In Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul instructs us, and this is, the, this is the part we forget about sometimes, but it's where the Holy Spirit, he sent the Holy Spirit. Paul instructs us in verse 16 to walk by the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And then in verse 18, he says, be led by the Spirit. And then in verse 25, he says, live by the Spirit. So with those three things, if we enact those three things, it becomes a very important part of what we are and who we are and how we live and, and those things. And we won't choose to do those things that we shouldn't do. Sometimes. Let's be honest. We've all made those mistakes and so on like that, but we need to make the difference. Paul, in... in in the Philippians, in writing to the Philippians, he, he wanted to make certain that they understood he, didn't, he hadn't already attained it. And in, in beginning in chapter 3 and verse 13, he says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. 
We are a work in progress by sanctification. We are a progressive work. And praise God we're progressive because in that sense, okay, the world's taken that word and done things with it. But we're progressive. Our life is progressive. We're moving forward. We need to stay moving forward. Um, and I'm going to remind us in this that the, the sanctification process doesn't happen all at once. It happens because we progress in Jesus. We take the choice. He cared enough to, to, to allow himself to come to this earth, to die for our sins, and so that we might move toward being who, we, who God intended us to be, who he destined us to be, and who he wants us to be. Amen? Amen. God, I'm, I, I thank every day that, that our pastors have cared enough to teach us about every time we learn a name, we learn a different character trait of Jesus, of our Lord, our Lord and God. We learn a different character trait. And some of us think, well, why is that important to learn his character? We know who he is. But if we don't know every part, if we don't have the wisdom and the knowledge and the understanding to move forward, we'll forget and we will we'll, we'll exist being common rather than being uncommon. Amen? Amen. Brother Brian's coming. Good morning, New Hope. And good evening to my Pakistan brothers and sisters that are watching this evening. Um, So I recently got a new job. Um, I locate the the uh, electric and gas under underground for Nipsco. so if you see me putting these flags in your yard, <laughs> please don't get mad. This is just my job. Um, one of the good things about my new job is I work outside all day. Um, I get the sunshine on my neck, sometimes a little bit too much. Um, and I get the breeze in my hair, or at least what hair I have left. Um, another thing that comes along with working outside all day, um, I work in a lot of tall grass and muddy ditches. Um, The further I wander from the road, it turns out the more insects and critters I find, such as snakes. So this led me to begin research on snakes. Google tells me that there are 3,000 species of snakes in the world, 375 species of venomous snakes in the world, um, and only a small portion are harmful to humans. And I'm aware that the snakes in Indiana are usually nothing to worry about. But certain snakes' bites can lead to serious injury. In our Christian walk, when we wander from God, like the Israelites did so many times in Old Testament history, we're more likely to get bit. And sometimes that will even lead to death. So Jehovah said, Kino, the Lord is our righteousness. Righteousness is God's divine standard of right and wrong. Man often determines what is right and wrong based on what is valuable to the individual. This leads to a world full of moral chaos, which we have today. We aren't the first people to do this. The book of Judges mentions the Israelites doing this. It says, in those days, Israel did did not have a king. The people did anything they thought was right. Their world was full of chaos, just like ours. My first point is this. God is our perfect moral compass. We need God's righteousness as an outside standard beyond our own desires. 
Ultimately, it will be God who judges all people based on whether they pursued his standard or their own agenda. The book of Psalms says the Lord rules forever. He has set up his throne so that he can judge people. He rules the world in keeping with what is right. He judges all its people fairly. So my family and me uh, recently went to Florida. We took a trip to Florida. Most of us had never seen the ocean before. Uh, Driving up to the Atlantic Ocean, the ocean is massive. As we drove closer, it got bigger and bigger. Uh, The first thing we did when we got there, we we all jumped in the ocean. Um, The ocean waves were a little overwhelming at first. Ashley was a little frightened at first. Uh, but then we slowly learned how to just jump over the waves. Um, we saw a lot of things. We saw dolphins very close to us. We saw jellyfish. We saw crabs. And we even saw a bi- someone catch a baby hammerhead shark. So this trip took about 20 hours of driving time. Um, halfway, we stopped and stayed the night in Tennessee. The next morning, we got back on the road. For several hours, we drove up and down mountains, humongous mountains. Our son, Adrian, was actually speechless for the very first time in his life. (laughs) During this entire trip, um, I had a map on my phone, and my phone was in a holder, so my hands were free to drive. We didn't get lost because we had a map. Not just a map, but on that map, there was a compass in the corner. I could look up and see south is in front of us and north is behind us. Without a compass, I would have gotten lost. Without Jehovah Sidkinu, we are lost. He is our plumb line, our measuring stick for righteous living. My second point, keep God front and center. There's two main types of vision. There's central vision, allows you to see what's going on directly in front of you. And then there's peripheral vision. This is what we can see on each side of us. When we move God to our peripheral vision and place something other than him in our central vision, our life will decline until he is at the center again. I have done this, and I know I'm not alone. Paul says in Romans, it is written, no one is right with God, no one at all. A few verses later, he says, everyone has sinned. No one measures up to God's glory. We all, have, excuse me, we all have moved God to the side at some point. Point number three, our faith is credited as righteousness. What an amazing promise that is. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians. God was bringing the world back to himself through Christ. He did not hold people's sins against them. God has trusted us with the message that people may be brought back to him. So we are Christ's official messengers It is as if God were making his appeal through us. Here is what Christ wants us to beg you to do. Come back to God. Christ didn't have any sin, but God made him become sin for us. So we can be made right with God because of what Christ has done for us. The gap between God's standard and our sin was bridged by Christ, the righteous one. Jesus Christ lived a life that completely fulfilled God's demand of righteousness. He gave himself on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for our own sins to repair our relationship with God. As believers, we can stand justified before God because when he sees us, he sees Christ's righteousness that we have received. Christ's perfect life was a fulfillment of the hope in Jeremiah's day. Behold, the days are come, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, 
a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. My last point, pursue God and live in his power. As justified people, we should grow in our hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. God's forgiveness should create a desire to make right decisions from day to day. This desire must be fed so that we have spiritual growth. One of the best ways to do that is signing up for a small group. (laughs) There will be a false sign-up for small groups in a few weeks. We must make room in our lives for studying and reflecting on God's Word. There are growth groups here at New Hope. I love going to Wednesday Adult Bible Fellowship. Also, there are over 20,000 biblically-based videos on the Right Now Media app that study every book of the Bible and hundreds of topics. This is available for free to everyone that comes to New Hope. Me and my wife just recently, a couple weeks ago, actually figured out how to put Right Now Media on our TV, and it's, it's awesome. It's, it's very awesome. We must fellowship with other believers. There are activity groups here at New Hope. I enjoy going to men's breakfast on Saturday mornings. We must make room for ministry. We have so many great ways to serve here at New Hope. Next year, we will be starting a Celebrate Recovery on Friday nights, helping people get free from hurts, habits, and hang-ups. We must worship God and glorify Him in our daily lives. The white flag is a symbol for surrender. When two armies are in battle, are you battling with God? Is there an area of your life that is off-limits to God? Is there still one thing that you are battling with God over? Surrender your entire life to Him. Put all of your time, talent, treasure, and testimony in His hands and let Him do whatever He wants to. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for what is right. They will be filled. In Jeremiah, God's people had forsaken the one true God for other idols. God still promised that He would remain faithful to His covenant, forgiving them and restoring them to their land. We serve the same God who is both righteous and forgiving and who longs to restore us to a right relationship with Him. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 72 disciples. It says, the 72 returned with joy. They said, Lord, even the demons obey us when we speak in your name. Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to walk all over snakes and scorpions. You will be able to destroy all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. So as we get closer to God and begin to understand what he has done out of his love for us, and as we pursue him with a deep hunger and thirst, We will understand him as the Lord, our righteousness, and we will learn to call him Jehovah Sidkino. Mr. Daniel Brown. Good morning. So out of the infinitely faceted God that we serve... The one we're going to look at now is Jehovah-Rohi. Have you ever noticed when you start digging into God's word, the more you dig, the more you find? So I apologize in advance. I'm going to be moving pretty quickly here to try and get through what I think I'm supposed to share. So Jehovah-Rohi. Jehovah, as we learned a few weeks ago, is a way of saying the self-existent, eternal God. And Rohi is kind of a personal twist on a root word, Ra'ah which is someone who tends or pastures a flock. So we could read this as 
The self-existent, eternal God who is my personal shepherd, which is quite a title for us. So I'm going to start in Psalm 23 um, because, as we learned in Isaiah 53, 6, I think it's been mentioned before up here, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've each tried to go our own way. We need a shepherd. So in Psalm 23, written by David, who was a shepherd, he understands sheep. I'm going to read parts of it. Again, I apologize. We're going to kind of skip through it. This could be an entire sermon by itself. As Pastor Adam mentioned when he was handing out these topics, each one of these could have gone quite a ways. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. I like how he starts out saying, the Lord is my shepherd. This sheep has identified that is the shepherd I want to follow. That's important. We're going to pick somebody or something to follow. That's important. I shall not be in want. This has a lot of connotations to it. I'm going to be reading a little bit out of um, some of Barnes' notes. I appreciate what he has to say about the word. But he says that this is something that is not just about physical things. It's not just things that I want. This also is kind of a foreshadowing of spiritual needs. Jesus is coming, our good shepherd. So this covers not just the things I think I want right now, but he provides everything that we actually do need. In verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. The makes is not actually in the original Hebrew. It's You have to fit another word in there to make the sentence make sense. But I like how they put it in here because there are times that God has to make us, make me lay down where I should. He's provided a pasture, and I want to march right through it. I've got something else I want to do. No, I need to lay down here. He makes us do that. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. That one I had to pause on for a moment. Uh, Again, I'm sorry, I'm going to read from somebody who's better with words than I am. This is Barnes Notes again. Literally, he causes my life to return. He quickens me or causes me to live. The word soul here means life or spirit and not the soul in the strict sense the word is now used. It refers to the spirit when exhausted, weary, or sad. And the meaning is that God quickens us and vivifies the spirit when thus exhausted. The reference is not to the soul or wandering or backsliding from God, but to the life or spirit as exhausted, wearied, troubled, anxious, worn down with care and toil. The heart, thus exhausted, he reanimates. He brings back its vigor. He encourages it, excites it to new effort, fills it with new joy. I don't think that just means for me. I assume there's going to be a few of you out there that this applies to also. When you feel weary, he restores your soul. I think the end of verse 3 and getting into verse 4, I think this is one thought, so we're going to read these together. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I think those two go together because as we're following our shepherd, there's times we get led through that valley of the shadow of death. And what is rendered shadow of death here, that word, is used about 16 times in the Old Testament. Over half of them are in the book of Job. He was not facing death at that time, but he was facing a lot of stuff. And so this valley of the shadow of death, this applies to not just end-of-life things. This is what you're going through today. 
So that valley of the shadow of death, that applies to a large group of things. And we will fear no evil, for he is with us, our good shepherd. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Two of the things a shepherd would carry was a rod and a staff. And the rod was for fighting off wolves and whatever else was trying to get the sheep. Yeah, that's comforting. But I had to think about your staff a little bit because that tended to be what they would use for discipline or correction of the sheep. How is that really comforting? And then I thought, well, it's actually comforting to know that when I go astray, he's not just going to let me go. He's going to bring me back in. He's going to correct me in the way that I need it. So that is comforting. So this is a little bit from the Old Testament. A lot of us are not shepherds and know a lot about sheep. But I want to find out what Jesus had to say about the heart of a shepherd. So we're going to turn over to Luke 15. And I'm going to read 3 through 6, the parable of the lost sheep. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Several things stuck out here to me on this. This parable and the next one about the lost coins, there's a woman who had 10 silver coins, lost one of them, and she went to a lot of effort to find that coin, like the shepherd did for this sheep. The Bible doesn't say that this was a special sheep. This was his favorite one. It was one out of 100, which is a lot for one guy to look after, but he noticed one was gone out of the hundred, and he went after it. It also doesn't say that he grumbled about it. Boy, this sheep, I've already chased it six times. I'm tired of it. No, he rejoiced. He was glad when he found it. He called people to celebrate with him. And some more about the heart of our shepherd is in John 10. I'm going to read two parts out of it. Two through, what did I say? Two through six, I think. No, two through five. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. That reminded me of something uh, in Revelation 2.17. It says, those who are faithful to the end will get a white stone with a name written on it, known only to God and the person he gives it to. That's mind-blowing to me. Our shepherd has a special name for each one of us. No extra charge for that. The watchman opens the gate for him ah, and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. I'm going down to verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. Praise the Lord. He's talking about us. He was talking to Jews here, but this is about Gentiles. This is us. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. So looking at the heart of the shepherd here, 
<laughs> this reminded me of somebody else who's really good with words. I'm going to read a little bit from Corey Asbury. He's utterly unconcerned with the consequences of his actions with regard to his own safety, comfort, and well-being. His love isn't crafty or slick. It's not cunning or shrewd. His love bankrupted heaven for you, for me. His love doesn't consider himself first. It's not selfish or self-serving. He doesn't wonder what he'll gain or lose by putting himself on the line. He simply puts himself out there on the off chance that you and I might look back at him and give him that love in return. His love loves the 99, leaves the 99 to find the one. His love isn't cautious. He sent his own son to die a gruesome death on a cross. There's no plan B with God. He gives himself so completely, his heart so preposterously, that if refused, we would think it irreparably broken. Yet he gives himself again and again and again and again. So this is the heart of our shepherd. Or maybe he's not your shepherd yet. But if he is, if he's not, why not today? His heart, he has a name for each one of us that he knows personally. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for revealing yourself to us in these facets, uh, the special names and titles that you have. I thank you for coming after us, for noticing when we're missing and going astray. I thank you for your tremendous heart that puts itself out there again and again. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.